Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to the Dear Prudence podcast. Once again, I am Dear Prudence, also known as Mallory Ortberg. And this week in the studio, we have a very special guest, yet another member of the Ortberg family, uh, my father, John Ortberg. And he is, we're very close to completing the set. The last person we need to get on deck is my little brother, uh, who I don't think we're ever going to be able to get on the show because he never does anything. Um but we're close. We're close. And, and I'm hoping that having dad on the show today will will drive Johnny to to come on the show someday himself. Hi, dad. Mallory, it's an honor to be here. And um, it pleases me no end to think that I am actually father of prudence. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's It's been so fun to have Laura and mom on the show. And I have been looking forward to this one, especially and have tried to find real like stumpers for you. Um, and my, my goal is just to try to be close to as good a guest as Carvel. Oh, for the listeners who are a little unclear on that, there is a long running feud between several guests who have appeared on the show about who is the best. Uh, mostly these are irritating friends of mine who live nearby and, and will ask repeatedly who was the best guest ever to appear on the show. And it's 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 getting ridiculous. The number of reviews we've gotten on iTunes that just mentioned Carvel uh, as if he were Dear Prudence or should be Dear Prudence. Is I, getting... I just saw one from William Shatner it's where he said William Carvel was the best. It, I, it upsets me so deeply that dad is bringing William Shatner into this. We had a fight last night at dinner about William Shatner. I feel like dad does not understand William Shatner. He does not give William Shatner the benefit of the doubt. He does not seek to understand William Shatner's goodness and greatness. I feel like ever since William Shatner insulted Prince Harry, I'm done with the man. <sighs> the point is that my father does not understand Prince Harry or William Shatner in the way that I do. And um, I think this is just not going to work out. There's a dense backstory. There is. There is. Um, well, I'm really excited to have you on the show, even though we're still going to fight about William Shatner. Uh, yeah, so I want to jump into the questions. And I think our first letter uh, is one that you are particularly well-suited to help me answer because it is about someone's relationship with their father. And you are, in fact, my father. So, <laughs> In fact, I am. You know, I, I don't think there's a, a better way for, for us to answer this question. So I'm just going to jump into it. The subject line is, tired of my daddy issues. Dear Prudence, as far back as I can remember, I've been scared of my dad. I grew up walking on eggshells because of his temper and watched him treat my mom like dirt. When I was 12, he took a job out of state and would start sending money to my mom and I and just come home for the holidays. I grew extremely close to my mother during my teens, and when I go home now, they divorced eight years ago, I stay with her and never at my dad's. Now that I'm in my 30s, our relationship has become very awkward and uncomfortable. If I miss his call or don't call him back within five minutes, he will ice me out, sometimes for weeks at a time. I never ask for his help or advice and refuse offers of financial assistance because I don't need it. I always do this kindly and thank him for his offer, but I get the impression that my not needing him upsets him greatly. One other big issue we have is that he feels that gifts are equal to love, and if I don't get him the perfect Christmas gift that is exactly what he needed or expected, he takes it really personally and gets upset. Sometimes he can be kind. And after being gone for so many years, I can tell he's trying to be more involved, especially with his grandkids. But he's still a very angry person at heart, and my nephew is terrified of him. We are looking to have kids soon, and I don't really have much desire for my future children to have a strong relationship with my dad. My father-in-law, on the other hand, is extremely kind, and I adore him. 
After years of allowing my dad's anger and guilt-tripping tendencies to stress me to the point of severe stomach pains, I'm wondering if instead of telling myself I'm supposed to find a way to repair our relationship, can I just let go of it? I am so tired of constantly wondering whether or not my dad is mad at me. I'll probably still have to see him once or twice a year. Painful. Yeah. No, that's that's hard on so many different levels. Um, to jump in, listening to all of those words, the first phrase that strikes me is when she says that her nephew is terrified of him. Hmm. And... Um, you know, you always kind of want to start with the deepest or potentially worst case scenario. And I wonder if he's had any kind of experience, if there's been any violence or anything that needs to be explored around the nephew's response. Because terrified is a pretty strong word. Yeah, I, I think generally, I mean, I am not a child expert, but it does seem like if a child is terrified of an adult, mm -hmm. that's usually not because the kid's overreacting. Like, uh, it's usually because there's a history of really upsetting behavior. And I think you're right. I think, like, that's just really sad to hear, right? Like, it would be sad if, aside from the fear, there was this sense of my dad mostly relates to me through the giving of gift and the exchange of money, and it's hard for me to talk to him about feelings, and he gets really icy and cold if I uh, accidentally offend him. But, like, the the bit about he always treated my mom like dirt, he scared me, now he's scaring my nephew— that's pretty big. Yep. And I think for her or somebody who has the most trust with the nephew, depending on how old the nephew is, to just begin with a very, very safe, very private conversation of, you know, it, it looks like there's some fear here. Can you tell me if there is? Is there anything special that's happened that's made you afraid? It's amazing how often um, we'll live with patterns that everybody knows, but because people get used to them, hmm. we never really explore them. Hmm. And... Um, if there is a deep problem when it comes out, there's that sense of, I'm shocked, but I'm kind of not surprised. And often just actually asking questions could turn something up earlier. So it would it would be worth starting there. I just would want to know with the nephew, is there anything behind his fear um, that ought to be looked at? Yeah. So it, it seems like overall the question is sort of, they're looking to ask sort of permission Am I allowed to stop trying to repair things with my dad? Would that be okay? Would my kids somehow be deprived of something if they were not growing up close to their grandfather on my side? Um, is that okay is sort of one question. And then the other question would be, you know, sometimes he's kind, but his history is really bad. He equates gifts with love. How do I, how can I talk to someone about that when they have a history of if I don't return their call quickly enough, like giving me the cold shoulder for weeks at a time? Yep. And uh, I think a really helpful concept when you think about behavior like that in a relationship with a, especially a parent like that is just the notion of boundaries hmm. and that um, to be a healthy self, to be a healthy person means just like um, property will have boundaries around it where this is where I stop and this is where you start. Um, that's true in relationships. And here to have a real healthy sense of boundaries with the father um, it's a painful thing to think of a person who is a dad where you don't have that relationship. But um, if the relationship is just consistently causing pain, and particularly if the father is demanding that uh, his daughter be kind of crazy to stay in relationship with him, um, then it's time to set some boundaries and say, I'm not going to keep doing that dance. So after all of the pain and the anger issues, treating the mom like dirt, if he's never expressed repentance for that, if he's never expressed sorrow, and then he's expecting her to give him the perfect gift or else he's going to be unhappy with her. That sounds like it could be a level of um, manipulation and um, uh, 
expectation that's not really healthy to be involved with. Right. So let's say, like, looking ahead, you know, it's going to be Christmas. What would your advice be for this letter writer right now? Like, do you get your dad a gift? And then if his if he responds badly, try to talk about it then? Do you not give him a gift this year? And if so, if he asks why, try to talk it out? Like, what what do you think would, would be your move if you this know, were you? You know, I, I was thinking about that one. I'm trying to think of the last time that I got a gift from somebody or I gave somebody a gift where it turned into something really unpleasant. And I can't. I remember one year for Christmas, I got not one but two nose hair trimmers as Christmas gifts. And I I think one of them was from you. Did I complain? Not Not at all. It was not from me. And and in fact, I now have maybe the tidiest nose of anybody (laughs) that I know in the Bay Area. Yeah, it's it's hard to picture getting angry about the Christmas present that you get from your adult child. Again, unless it's incredibly pointed and and like an unconscious, yeah, I don't know, like a book that says you're a bad person, fix yourself. Yeah. Um, So I I would say if that pattern's gone on and and this person's aware of it and they haven't talked about it with their dad, the next step is I'd want to talk about it. hmm. And um, again, you know, you only got one dad. And so it's worth seeking to repair it. And if he would be willing to go see a counselor or somebody that could help them have a conversation around this, that would be a good thing. But uh, if there's consistent interactions like that, that lead to that much pain and they can't be discussed, um, I think there's real serious implications about how much closeness you can expect. Hmm. So if I was in this, my first step would be, I'd want to talk about it with my dad. If I felt like there was some reason that I couldn't, and it's Christmas, I would probably give a, you know, typical gift. I wouldn't do something lavish. But if there was that kind of response to it, I would sure want to follow it up with a conversation. Yeah, I I think that's a a good idea. I think I'm kind of torn between either getting a nice but not outrageous gift and then waiting to see what his response is. Or, you know, we're far enough out that if, if you felt like bold to call and say, you know, I'm thinking about Christmas and I'm nervous to bring this up with you because in my experience, I feel like every year I try to get you something that you'll like, doesn't live up to your expectations and you get really upset. And that's not the kind of relationship I want to have with you. And that's not the way that I want to give one another gifts. And I want to talk about it. Like I, I'm dreading that aspect of Christmas this year and that's not how I want to interact with you. So, so let's talk about uh, an angry person for a moment. <laughs> yeah. Um, especially if you're the child of an angry person. Remember years ago, there was a, a book that summarized all of the research, all the studies that have been done around self-esteem. And they said, uh, there's a paradox there where you can be really bright, really attractive, really successful and have very low self-esteem. The common theme for somebody who wrestles with that is fear. Hmm. And um, if somebody does something that takes courage, even if it doesn't turn out well, you get this little sense of strength inside. Hmm. And if you avoid doing the hard thing, even if your situation turns out well, you die a little bit inside. Hmm. And I'm wondering for the person who wrote this, if they have been living in fear and avoiding speaking the truth and having honest conversations, and if they've been doing that, um, it, it will just kill something that's very core to humanity inside. And so even if the conversation doesn't go well, what, what happens is when you had a whole history of conversations with somebody, and especially when they were your parents, so they're big, and especially when that's a dad mm-hmm. and, you know, you were tiny, um, your adrenaline starts pumping, your palms get sweaty, um, 
And I have a lot of empathy for this person because probably she tries to have a hard conversation with her dad. Yep. She's going to feel like she's doing it really badly. Yeah. Or else she's got to get so mad that she screams at him and that's not great either. Because that's the only way she'll feel safe saying it to him. Exactly. Yeah. And so to say, you set a real low bar hmm. where his response is up to him and you don't force yourself to say it perfect or even great, but just to be able to say... Um, I've gotten you gifts before, and the way that you have responded to them has hurt me. I, I think that could be a great step for this person, however the dad responds. And I think that would feel better than the strategy of getting a regular present and seeing what happens, because I think you've already collected enough information to know this is a real pattern that merits discussion. Um, and, and, and since you're already at a point where you're thinking, I would like to just let go of this relationship, you don't have a lot to lose. So I think it's worth having that conversation now and have it over the phone if the idea of getting together in person is too intense. Um, but I, th- I think that that will go a long way towards making you feel more in control, um, more like you have the ability to decide how you want to be treated um, and, and less like you are always at your dad's sort of beck and call. I couldn't agree more. There's something about taking action um, that is incredibly life-giving. And there's something about waiting to take action and hoping that things will turn out all right that just sucks the life out of you. Yeah. And um, clearly, if this is a situation where her mom was treated like dirt by her dad, there's going to be other people who have seen these dimensions. So she's not alone in it. Right. And I think maybe even to consider saying, like, I I don't know that he's ever heard this in his life to just say, I just want you to know I'm afraid of you. I grew up (sighs) afraid of you. And that's why this is really hard to say to you now. I don't want to be afraid of you, and I hope you don't want other people to fear me. I don't want that to be the kind of relationship you have with your grandchildren, and I'm afraid that I see it happening now. Yep. And his response to that might be awful. It might be, you know, total rejection. It might be a meltdown. It might be he might be somewhat receptive to it. You know, I can't predict how that would go, but I think it would be really valuable for him to hear Someone say, you cause fear in other people. Yep. And it it would be much better to be able to have it when things are calm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not at the holiday dinner, not after he's unwrapped your present and said, this isn't good enough. And the problem usually is we end up having hard conversations at the worst possible times because we wait for there to be a blow up. Oh, totally. Totally. I mean, I've done that. I've done that with you. I mean, you you know me. You remember me from my childhood. We were I'm quite, stunned. I, we were quite close when I was young. I'd never seen anything like that before. And, and I can get really conflict avoidant. Well, just think about William Shatner. I, uh, but yeah, I totally relate to the idea of hoping some a dynamic will change until it gets to a point where I feel like this is unbearable and I have to kind of explode. Um, and how much better it would have been to initiate that conversation. But it's kind of just like I can't. I can't make myself do this unless the only alternative is unbearable. There was a, a, a really good book written years ago by a guy named Neil Warren, a psychologist named Neil Warren. And he said, anytime you're dealing with anger, it's called make anger your ally. Mm. And he said that anger at its core is a, uh, it's a form of energy. And its purpose is to alert us there's something wrong and that needs to get corrected. Um, And mismanaged anger is one of the biggest challenges in human life. One of the first questions that we tend to forget dealing with anger is, what do I want? Mm. And I remember he's got this one chapter where the the title of the chapter is, um, you get what you ask for, but not what you want. And with angry people, that's often what will happen. And I think what this woman wants is she would want to have a safe and authentic relationship with her dad 
And then if she has children between them and what would be their grandfather. And so I, I think if you can say it with authenticity to say, you know, dad, I want to have a really important conversation mm-hmm. and kind of set up ahead of time. It's going to involve some things that might be hard for you to hear. I'm having it because I would like to have a good relationship with you. Um, but I can't have one and won't have one where there's badly mismanaged anger and mm. damage. And so I'd like for you to hear what it is that I will try to say the best that I can. I probably won't say it right. And so I'll come back and try to clean it up and say it again. But if there could be the context set of uh, I'm saying these things not to inflict pain on you, Mm -hmm. but because I would like for there to be a relationship and given the track that we're on, there can't be. The fact that she's seeing him reach out to her and try to reestablish connection says there's something in him that wants closeness, and it's possible to appeal to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, no, I, I think that that's, yeah, I, I think that that's probably the best way to approach it. I just find myself thinking, I think something that comes up a lot in letters when people talk about their childhoods that I see in this is one of the most damaging ways a person can handle anger, I think, is to uh, unleash it on kids. Um, and it just says a lot when... You know, there are letters about someone who uh, is is harsh, is angry, is unflexible, is unyielding with the people with the least amount of power mm-hmm. in a situation, which is usually kids. Um, and just the ways in which that can cause damage that just reverberates through the rest of their lives. Um, and just if you yourself find yourself reacting to kids, either your own or other people's kids with like harshness and inflexibility and yelling and, and kind of dominating a situation emotionally or physically, um, it's just... It's not good. It doesn't it doesn't result in what you want. It does not it'll get you what you want in the short term, which mm-hmm. is usually compliance, but in the long term it will just cause harm. Um and that's really sad. When I was going through grad school in psychology, it was a bad era. And one of the theories that was real popular then was uh, the idea of um kind of ventilation ventilationism, where you just need to ventilate your anger, just mm-hmm. get it out. And people would write stuff like you know, if you don't let your anger out, one day you're just going to blow up. You're just going to spew it. And it's really odd because we would never say that about other emotions. Nobody ever said, oh, you're not expressing gratitude. All the gratitude is going to build up inside you. And one day you're just going to start thanking everybody. We would never do that with joy, but we would do that with um, anger. And it turns out um, ventilation is not a good anger management strategy because it ends up being fun to ventilate. Hmm. And that's part of why it can happen, particularly with kids, because kids can't hit back. Kids can't hurt back. Right. Um, but the danger, the great danger with just letting it fly is in the moment, physiologically and emotionally, it feels good. And there's a weird thing with anger. Anytime you're feeling anger, you always feel self-righteous. There's oh, yeah. always a self-righteous superior element in it. And that always feels good. But in the long run, it's always toxic to relationships. Which is, it's funny that you mentioned that because there's actually an episode of The Simpsons about that very concept uh, that is about um, Ned Flanders. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, uh, the Springfield is hit by a hurricane and his house is the only one that's destroyed. And then Homer leads the charge to rebuild it because everyone, you know, comes around Flanders and you think it's going to be very heartwarming. But of course, they do a terrible job. And the house falls apart and Flanders just goes you know, nuts and just starts insulting everyone. And it sort of goes back in his backstory to show that he was raised by hippie beatniks and they never disciplined him. So he was a terror. Uh, so they sent him to like the Minnesota school for the spankological protocol. <laughs> and uh, he just has to learn to. Actually, I was raised in that school. I was going to say. Um, yeah. So he just learns to cover Repress. up all his anger mm-hmm. with like, 
well, hi, diddly ho, you know, that kind of nonsense. Mm-hmm. And then he gets devented at the, you know, in yeah. the middle of the episode and that supposedly fixes him. Um, and that's, uh, they should have had that episode around when you were in school. Yeah. Clearly. Yeah, it would have helped a whole lot. You know, the Simpsons have an episode for everything. They do. And I also really like saying spankological protocol. All right. All right. I think we should move on to our next letter. I, I kind of like that we're diving in really deep with these because these are intense letters. And this one, this one might actually uh, even be more so than the last one. Um, the subject line of this one is just, do I tell? Uh, so I'm just going to go ahead and read it. Dear Prudence. When I was 19, I had an affair with my pastor that resulted in a pregnancy. I was a shameless, spoiled brat who only thought about herself. I pursued him and excused my selfishness with every justification in the book. He offered to come clean to the congregation, but it would have cost him his career and marriage, and I refused. Instead, I went out of state and quietly gave up a baby girl for adoption. I would have made a terrible mother. No child should grow up feeling unwanted or unloved. Since then, I have gotten my master's, moved away, and gotten married. My husband knows about my past, but he's the only one I've shared it with. Recently, I was contacted by the agency that arranged the adoption and was told that my daughter wanted to meet me. We met in a coffee shop, and it left me disturbed. She wanted more than I could give her. She tried to call me mom and got upset when I asked her not to. She wasn't happy with the medical history I brought her, but wanted to know more. Her mother died when she was 13, and she didn't get along with her stepmother. I think she'd built up an image in her head that reality can't match. She wanted to know more about her father and got very hostile when I declined. I made the mistake of mentioning he was married with children. She yelled that I had no right to keep her from her siblings, and I ended up fleeing before we caused a scene. Since then, she has emailed me and called several times, pleading for information. I'm racked with guilt. I know where he is, and he seems to have a good life, a long marriage, children, grandchildren, etc. I don't see how bringing this up 20 years later will do anything but cause grief. What should I do? Contact him? Give her the information she wants? Ask her to leave me alone? My husband tells me that I have done more than I needed to do and let it go, that her father was the man who raised her, not someone who never even saw her face. I need some advice. Oh, man. This one is... There are so many issues tangled up in this one. When when people go for licensing to do therapy, they will make up uh, cases and then keep adding layers to them to just make them incredibly difficult ethically, legally, physically, and this is like one of those. Yep. I, I this isn't this is almost tangential. I feel like before we jump into it, I just want to point out like the letter writer really castigates herself at yeah. the beginning as if to sort of say, don't bother looking into this aspect of it. I've already figured out that it was my fault and I was spoiled and I did everything wrong, which is like maybe that's true. Um, maybe you absolutely did pursue him in a way that you shouldn't have, and maybe you were selfish. Uh, I'm I'm not interested in sort of uh, trying to argue that it was the best thing you ever did. But I just also want to point out that this pastor who was married, uh, you know, he has autonomy. He had choice in the matter, and he was wrong to do what he did. And just because you told him not to go clean to the congregation uh, doesn't mean it wasn't wrong that he didn't acknowledge what he did. So let's talk about that for a minute, because, yeah, that's my job. So I have lots of thoughts on that front. So this is before we get into what do you do about uh, the daughter. Um, When there is a sexual relationship between a pastor and a parishioner, it's not an equal relationship. Um, it is an abuse of power yeah. relationship. And when you add to that the fact that this is a 19-year-old girl, I mean, in a sense, kudos for her for seeking to take responsibility. But she is not equally responsible to him. There's all kinds of issues with a pastor where they have a certain kind of power. People will project onto a pastor mm-hmm. all kinds of spiritual authority. 
And it's a violation of that role and the trust that the church and a prisoner would have in the pastor for that relationship to have happened, Mm -hmm. for which he is not responsible. And um, if I was hiring somebody and they had had a sexual affair with a teenage girl in a church and there was a child born— and they did not disclose that to me. A, a question that we would always ask uh, in the church when hiring somebody is, um, have you done anything that would be embarrassing to the church or would break trust if it became public? Mm-hmm. And um, my biggest concern would be if this has happened with her, um, who else might it have happened with? Yep. And for there not to be accountability and knowing uh, on the part of the leaders, whatever kind of church or denomination he's involved with, um, means that other women could be at risk. Yep. Yep. No, and I just think, too, I feel this very strongly, like, yes, you were 19, you weren't, it was not illegal. Um, there wasn't that degree of any abuse of power. But uh, in addition to the fact that there's that imbalance of power to begin with, it was wrong of him to let you take that hit. Even if you had said, no, it would cost you your marriage and your career, he's already compromised his marriage and he's already compromised his career. The only difference would be people would know about it. Uh, That's exactly right. You know, his relationship to his job, his relationship to his wife has already been deeply damaged by the thing that he did. um, And and it would not be made worse by bringing it to light. It would only be bringing clarity and honesty to the conversation. So the fact that he said, "Okay, go out of state, handle this yourself was a real failure on his part to act morally. Yeah. And that's in addition to the relationship and the sexual involvement. Apart from that, uh, his agreement to um, keep it a secret and not to disclose to the leadership body of his church or his denomination um, is a violation of trust with them and of ethics with them. That's a really bad thing. So I would have to say on this one, uh, I believe it would be worth contacting that man, not in a punitive way, um, not out of vengeance, not to do damage, but because there's the possibility that other women have been violated, have been at risk. Um, the elders of a church or the leaders of a church would need to know if this was part of somebody's history. And maybe he's done that. Yeah. Maybe he went to the leadership and he handled it rightly. Um, but my concern would be not just this situation, it would be... Uh, are there other women that have been damaged? People who do research into uh, clerical malpractice talk about kind of two profiles. Mm. Um, some folks are called uh, wanderers. And there's an old story in the Bible of King David who gets involved with a woman named Bathsheba where it's a relationship that seems to have been a one-time relationship. Mm-hmm. Although he had lots of other wives, so that's a bad example. Never mind. <laughs> um, but then the other profile is called predators. And there will be some people, it could be clergy, it could be doctors, could be any profession that's got authority attached to it, where they're actually looking for uh, women that they can cross lines in and engaging in grooming behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then there can be lots and lots of victims of that. And um, so when somebody crosses lines or engages in misbehavior, to make sure that people who are in authority and are credible uh, are creating accountability and appropriate boundaries, 
um, is hugely important. And we have seen in the Catholic Church and in lots of Protestant churches and every kind of worship tradition, the damage that gets done Mm -hmm. when that gets ignored. And I think that that kind of speaks to something at the end of her letter that I hear a lot, which is I don't see how bringing this up 20 years later will do anything but cause grief. He has what seems like a good life, a long marriage, children and grandchildren. Um, There will often be a hesitance on the part of somebody who has truth especially if the truth is painful or embarrassing, to bring it to light because they will say, it's been a long time and it looks like this person has a good life. And I I feel really strongly that if your good life is based upon keeping information a secret, pretending that you did not do something you did, lying to the people closest to you about a serious breach of trust that you committed, you do not in fact have a good life. Um, You might have a comfortable life. You might have a life that looks really good to people from the outside. You might have an easy life. You might have a life that is relatively conflict-free, but that is not goodness. Um, And and I don't think that that should be what dictates your choices. I think... um, you're, you're right to not necessarily say that uh, you're eager to give this information to this young woman. It sounds like she's in a really difficult position. I have a lot of empathy for for your daughter. Um, it sounds like she's been through a great deal, does not have the sort of parental relationship that, you know, she might have hoped for and is looking for a connection. Um, and and to, to think of this as just she's causing trouble. She's a problem. She's not a problem. She's a person. No, and it's one of the ways where we don't handle sex and power well. Right. And very often, uh, I mean, I have great empathy with this woman. If she's 19 years mm-hmm. old and she goes forward to the leaders of the church, she could be afraid if it gets mishandled that she gets labeled, that she gets victimized even further. Mm-hmm. You know, we've seen that happen in very public ways with political figures and young women and so. So, you know, there's lots of reasons that can give you understanding as to why she might have wanted not to take that step. But um, uh, when you stop and ask what's most likely to be helpful for the person that was involved, for the other people who are involved, truth, just as a general rule, dear Prudence, (laughs) truth is your friend. Yep. Yep. So I think... Again, I I would encourage this letter writer to think not – I think right now it looks like you're looking at it in this way. The child, the daughter, this woman is a problem. And the thing to be protected is this man's life. And I think – and again, I want to say it sounds like it was a really good decision for you to give this girl up for adoption. I don't want to make it sound like you owe her being a mother – um, you you made a choice to, uh, you know, have her adopted. It sounds like that was the good choice for you. I don't think that you owe her motherhood now. Um, but I do want to encourage you to think of her as someone who has, who deserves protection, mm-hmm. uh, who deserves empathy, who deserves at least being listened to. Again, that does not mean you, you have to let her call you mom. That doesn't mean you have to have a relationship if that's not what you want. Um, but don't think of her as this problem you successfully got rid of 19 years ago that is now threatening mm. to protect this man. I don't think he's worthy of your protection. I don't think he needs protection. I think it would be good for him um, to have to experience discomfort and painful questions and, you know, uh, re- reprisal, like appropriate, rep- not not like reprisal, like pitchforks and 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 torches, but consequences. Consequences. That's the one. And again, 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And again, the, the the first step, I would say, is to make sure that other women have been protected. You want to find out if other people could have been damaged. So I would say protecting him and keeping his secret would be at the very bottom of the list of priorities. Yeah. Yeah. And if any new priorities come up, they would shove it below that. Yes. Yeah. Um, so do you think then her next move, because it sounds like she also wants to navigate this in a way that does not encourage future intense closeness between mm-hmm. her and this girl. Um, do you encourage her to get in touch with the pastor and say, I've heard from our daughter. She wants to know more about you. Do you uh, get in touch with the girl and say, I'm sorry that I reacted so strongly. Uh, the circumstances of your birth were really painful for me. That doesn't mean that like you aren't a valuable person. I just am embarrassed by the situation that I found myself in when I was 19. Here is his information. Please be aware that he has a family. I mean, that's definitely handing her a bomb. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that she's in an emotionally compromised state. What would be the least destructive way to handle this right well, now? Well, the first thing I would do if I was her is if he's at a church, I would contact who's ever the appropriate authority in the mm-hmm. church, if they have an elders or if there's a bishop that's over him, to find out, do they know his history? Mm-hmm. Because if they don't know that, they need to know that. They and do. she can't trust him no. to handle that one. No, he does not have a great track record with so, truth. So I would start there. And then I would say her next obligation would be to the daughter, not to the pastor. Okay. And so then the question would be, what's going to serve that daughter best? Mm-hmm. And I think probably to say to the father, um, here's the situation. She has come to me. She wants to know who you are. Um, she found out who I am. I think she deserves to know who you are. But to tell him and to, to give him uh, instructions on, you know, we need to think about her now. Mm-hmm. And so you need to be prepared for this. You need to handle it well. And... Um, and to tell him I'm going to give that information to her or uh, offer for him to give that information for her. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that that's a good instinct. I don't know that I want to encourage her to do this. It sounds like she's very much inclined not to and that her husband also wants to encourage her to say, don't do it. Um, so I, I, I am kind of aware that we may be giving advice that might not get taken. Um, but I, I do think that that would be a really good idea. And I think just that sentence that your husband said, her father was the man who raised her, not someone who never even saw her face. You know, it's so difficult when it comes to navigating issues like uh, adoption, family of choice, family of birth, adopted family, who's your parent, who's not. And and I think one thing that's just really important is that um, it's not for you two to decide who her father is. Yeah. I think if she, you know, you don't know what her relationship is with the man who raised her. And you don't know that she's necessarily saying that uh, that man's not really her father. Her only father could be the biological father. She just wants to know um, the the people who gave birth to her. And I think I think she does have a, a right to that. And so it's not for you to say you don't get to know him. You have to only know your adoptive family. I, I I do think there's there's some level of right to know, not that you can force someone into a relationship with you, but I, I do think that she has the right to at least call and ask. And, and I do think that he should not be in the position of power that he's in now. I don't believe that he should be a pastor. Um, if there's one thing I want to do in this column, it is not give too much credit to someone who is neglected to live up to their moral responsibilities, especially when that person is a man with power. So we're going to switch over now to a voicemail that we got recently, again, about issues with, with parents, um, both living and dead. Uh, and I think we're going to go ahead and play it for you guys now. Hi, Prudence. Um, my mom died last year after 
a long illness uh, that was ignored for two years. So she was sick for quite a while. She also had severe depression and anxiety that was untreated, but she self-medicated with alcohol. And she was a lot of times a very rageful and difficult person. Um, my problem though was with my dad, who was an enabler and did nothing to protect my siblings and me. I feel like he essentially abandoned us and then didn't have the decency to actually leave. He just hung around like an ineffectual ghost while my mom was rageful and abusive. I'm in therapy and I'm trying to work through my grief and anger. Uh, I haven't actually talked to my dad in about five or six months um, while I'm trying to work through these things. My therapist says that the anger will go, but it's proving to be an amazing renewable resource. Um, should I try to have a limited relationship with him? And if so, how do I open it? Uh, I live in Europe, so it's not like we're going to see each other every week. But he's the only grandparent my son has left. So the idea of cutting him off entirely does not appeal to me, but I don't know how to have a relationship with him anymore. Man. You can hear the ache and wound in that voice. I tell you, it's just, yeah, yeah, you feel that. There's something about getting voicemails, especially from somebody who's just in this level of pain. I just, again, I just want to, I wish there was more I could do to just connect. Wrap your arms around the body that belongs to that voice and just give her a hug. Yep, yep. Mm. But this is, I mean, this is such a huge question. This is just like, is the anger ever going to go away? Uh, What do I do now that I have a child? And that kind of unspoken question of, do I sacrifice my emotional well-being to make sure that my son has a grandparent he can connect with? How do I express anger? You know, how do I feel about my mom now that she's dead and there's nothing I can do? Um, You know, man. The first step, the fact that she's seeing a therapist and talking about the pain and looking with unblinking gaze at the reality of her family, that's a very good thing. Mm -hmm. It requires a lot of courage. It's much easier to run away. I'm so glad that you're doing that, but there'll be a cost to it. And again, you can just kind of hear it takes a lot of energy to to deal with um, massive internal hurt, um, takes energy and and depression itself often is energy turned inward for one reason or another. There was a a, a British psychiatrist named Emma Gutt. It's a great name for a psychiatrist. Yeah. And uh, she wrote a book about productive and unproductive depression. Hmm. And part of her point was uh, sometimes there's a certain kind of work that requires so much energy um, that depression becomes a season of life in which I'm actually doing internal work that I could not do if I didn't devote that level of emotion to it. Mm. And that may be part of what's going on with this caller because she is dealing with a deep level of trauma. And then with the father where that line about his being like a ghost. That was, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That was powerful. Yeah. And the, and the sense of betrayal becomes uh, actually somewhat more difficult to deal with as you become a more aware of how bad the abuse was for one parent. You actually become then more aware of the sense of betrayal from the other parent because as you're seeing more clearly, oh, this is what was done to me. Then you're saying, but you saw this and you didn't do anything. And so in a sense, you're almost losing the ability to receive nurture from both parents at the same time. Yeah. No, and just the the sort of double whammy of your mother was the active abuser and she's dead. So your father now is presumably a little less sometimes like like we were talking about in the first letter when someone's really high levels of anger and rage, the idea of confronting them can feel so overwhelming that we won't allow ourselves to even consider it. So there's this sort of added difficulty of 
your father, it sounds like, would not blow up in a rage if you talked to him and he's still living. So there would be ways in which I would imagine the anger and hurt would feel magnified because he is somebody uh, that you're not as afraid of, um, which is really painful. I, I, what do you think about the therapist saying at some at some point the anger will pass? Like, do you think it's productive or valuable to think of anger and grief as something that you eventually run out of? Do you think that's a helpful goal? Would it, what would what would you think? What would you say to somebody who was expressing this level of trauma, this level of hurt? What, what would you want them to have a relation? What would you want their relationship to their own anger yep. look like? Again, I would say anger is a form of energy. Uh, and it exists for a purpose, and that purpose is to solve or correct something that's wrong. It's kind of like an alarm clock going off where it's the, the goal of it is to get you out of bed and to do something, and so you want to respond to that. You don't want to live with perpetual, chronic, unending anger. Right. Um, th- that would not be the goal. And in this case, the primary inflictor of pain was the mom, and she's not inflicting that pain now. Um, so uh, you don't want to live in perpetual anger. Um, it is true that often eventually when, when the trigger, when the cause of pain goes away, the anger eventually will go away. Mm-hmm. Um, spontaneously, lots of things happen. Depression often goes away spontaneously. Vacuum cleaners fix themselves spontaneously. Mm-hmm. That's basically the way that I handle almost all appliances. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I would say with anger, um, uh, there is work that can be done. I do think that to seek reconciliation, especially with a parent, is a good thing, not just for the sake of the parent, um, but for the good that can come in my own heart. And I think generally, most of us have no idea how long and complex a process hurt, hate, anger, and forgiveness can be. Mm -hmm. And we think of it as, and we see this in movies, and we think of it as just a one-time event. Right. Yeah, I don't think that forgiveness or reconciliation is something that could happen without first elucidating the ways in which he has failed her. Um, And I think that it might be that you need to take another five or six months to not speak to him. Yeah, and I would distinguish between forgiving and reconciling. Yeah. I I think forgiving is something you, you relinquish your right to hurt and damage the other person and get to the place where you wish them well. Yep. And I think that's always a good thing to do. Reconciling is something that can only be done if the other person is genuinely willing to um, repent, to make amends, um, to meet you in some place where you both can have at least a fairly shared perception of what's happened. And if the other person is not able to do that, I believe you can forgive them. You can let go of your right to hurt them, but there cannot be reconciliation. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's important to distinguish between. And, uh, you know, if you're able to have this conversation with your father at some point in the future, when you feel a a little emotionally prepared, like you have a bit of a support system behind you, um, if he's not capable of hearing it, if he just responds with, I don't know what you're talking about, that never happened, your mother wasn't that bad, you're speaking ill of the dead, which is, uh, you know, unfortunately often how people will handle hearing claims of past abuse, um, then I think it would be not only fair and appropriate, but right and and good for you to say, uh, you know, unless you can acknowledge the reality of of what happened growing up in that home, I can't trust you with my son. I don't want you to have a relationship with him. Um, and something for her to keep in mind is, uh, as painful as all of this is, it is it's also an amazing opportunity and an, an inevitable act where you're going to be teaching your child how to deal with anger. Right. 
And uh, I think about one of our kids. Oh, it was you. When Mallory was little and she got really mad, we had to go through a series of phases to teach her how do you manage anger because first, she only had a couple of teeth, and when she got mad, she would just look at you and grit those few little teeth and say, I bite you. And we'd say, no, Mallory, you don't bite. And so then she would look at you and she'd be furious, and her eyes, these brown, stormy eyes, she'd say, I hit you. We said, no, Mallory, you don't hit. So then she said, I squish you. And she would reach out with her forefinger and her thumb and grab a little bit of your skin and squish. And that was so funny. We thought that'd be okay until one day she came out of her baby little brother's room where he was taking a nap and he was screaming. And she surprised. Uh, she was surprised to see her mom and I looking down at her. And she looked up at us with this cherubic grin and said, we don't squish the baby, do we? So when we come to dealing with anger, we come to one of the great emotional challenges of all life, and dear Prudence herself took many, many years to master it. Hey, I, I think this is what I asked for when I brought my dad on the show, but um, I would just like to point out I have no memory of squishing the baby, all of which is to say, yeah, I think, you know, in order to get past any sort of anger, you will need at some point to name it, and you'll need to name this to your father. And whether you do that in writing, whether you do that with a third person, whether you do it like yeah. via your therapist. Um, and I definitely encourage you to talk it out with your therapist first, like to say, my goal is to someday have a conversation with my father about the ways in which he enabled my mother's abuse. Um, and to make that a goal of your therapy together so that the two of you are working together on that. And, so and that to give yourself you. lots of time on something yes. like this. The deeper the hurt, the longer it's going to take to, in a healthy way, build any kind of trust. Right. And so, you know, the goal is not I'm going to have one conversation with my dad and resolve everything and he'll cry and it'll all be okay. It will be a long process. So I, I feel a little bad because I have given you maybe the heaviest series of questions we've ever had a guest tackle with almost no break. So I want to end with a, a voicemail that I'm really excited to listen to. This is from someone named Rocky, who wants to take a break from his life to play poker. And I already want, I just want everyone to know, I'm going to tell Rocky yes. I haven't listened to this voicemail yet. I don't know yet what is going on. I, he could have like 10 kids at home to feed. Rocky, I want you to quit your life and play poker. I want you to follow the stream. I, I'm on your side. Let's hear it. Hi there. My name is Rocky, not real name. Uh, I have a pound first world problem. Uh, so I have a beautiful wife, beautiful child, children. Um, love them. Uh, we live in uh, Silicon Valley. We own our home. Uh, we have good schools. Um, no complaints at all with my life. Um, uh, you know, I'm... I'm been the benefit. I've had the benefit of good education and great parents, and you know, I've, I've, I've done well, and so has my family. Uh, so the problem I have is I just need to take a break, and I just want to quit my job and play poker for like three months. And I think my wife is going to freak. Um, you know, she thinks it's gambling, and parts of it are, but I just have a side of my personality that really loves the game and there is skill involved so I just want to take three months off and play poker um, I would still maintain the same schedule I have nine to five I would just play in the day uh, during the weekdays and I would just you know try to culminate in in, in entering a big tournament um, you know she would have concerns about well is this gambling and other concerns about are your are your professional skills going to uh, I'm going to wane, but it just goes back to 
uh, what I said before, where you know I'm I'm I'm, I'm fairly accomplished. I've, I've I've had a lot of training. I've had a lot of I've, I've good skills for uh, where I live. So I don't see that being an issue. But I just I just wonder, do you have any advice about how to approach this with my wife and explain to her that you know it's just a short term thing, just sort of like a, a sabbatical? Well, Rocky. <laughs> Although you tried cleverly to disguise your voice, it was quite apparent this is, in fact, Barack Obama. Oh, my gosh. Anybody who was listening carefully could hear Air Force One droning in the background a couple of times. And quite frankly, I think all of us in the country feel like after what you've been through, if you want to take a couple of months to go play poker, take a couple of months and go play poker. Oh, my gosh. I'm just picturing him as a card shark somewhere wearing sunglasses and a hat indoors, just like... Barack Obama, I haven't heard that name in years. <laughs> That's wonderful and beautiful. Um, I loved everything about this voicemail. I, I want to listen to this voicemail every night before I fall asleep. Everything about it was so beautiful from from the idea that he's received training in poker. Like he's trained at some sort of poker dojo and has re- received like his poker certification, which I don't know, maybe exists. Um, it's just just wonderful. I just love everything about it. I, I think my favorite part is that apparently the issue his wife has is that it would be gambling. And he's kind of hoping that we'll be able to find an argument that will convince her that it's not gambling. As if that's the problem. I also Well, li- if it's not gambling, my I, gosh. I like, I don't know why it tickled me. I like it when he said, I have a child. Children. <laughs> <laughs> like, was know. he momentarily confused? Is he putting out some kind of a deceptive backstory and that's part of it? What's going on with this guy? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I just love the idea. That he's like, do I have kids? And how many? Mm-hmm. I should write this down. <laughs> you know, just like have a little card in my pocket somewhere that's like, the children, here they are. Um Yeah, I don't think that you're going to win this by convincing your wife that playing poker isn't gambling. Uh, I'm trying to think. I think it's a red herring. If I came home to my wife and said I'd like to have a three-month sabbatical to play poker, I don't know. Yeah, work. I I think give it a try. Even if you convince her it's not gambling, which I don't think you're going to do. Yeah. Like her, her objections are are not that it's gambling, right? Her objections are that you would like to quit what is presumably a stable job. Uh, to play a game for three months. I don't think so. I think her objection was that it's gambling. If you can you just start prove gambling. it isn't gambling, she's yeah. happy. Yeah, or you could play poker for the joy of it. That's what the Greeks used to do. You could be an amateur. Whatever happened to the amateur? Now it's all about money, money, money. Grub, poker grub, has been grub. sullied. It has been. Just uh, play for chips. You used to love the game. You used to love the game, but it now it's all about beauty. cash. Yep. Rocky. Yep. No, it's just like the Olympics. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I understand her concerns, right? Do you think her under, her concerns are understandable? <laughs> do you think she's being unreasonable? <laughs> no. No, I think she's the soul of reason. Rocky, I think you could be at risk right now in ways you have no idea. Yeah, man, I I, I want to I wanna give you this sabbatical. I don't know. I wish you had told us exactly how much money you have in savings right now um, because that would definitely affect the answer I gave you. Because if it's, I don't know, a million dollars, sure, take three months off. But what if you lose at poker? You can lose, right? You lose money. That's possible. Well, I hate to get serious. I think it's just because we've had so many like really, really heavy comments. I will say this. Mm-hmm. Actually, uh, we have somebody in our family, I won't say who, who um, just lost their house because there was an addiction to gambling going on. And uh, it was secret. The other spouse didn't know. And so, you know, for anybody who's listening to this, just to be serious for a moment, uh, uh Gambling addiction. If you've ever read that little book by Charles Duhigg on the power of habit, hmm. uh, when somebody gets gripped by gambling, the folks, particularly the things that folks in Vegas will do to keep inviting them to come and stay for free at a casino, um, is kind of appalling. So, so just watch that one, Rocky. If it's an addiction thing, don't do it. Otherwise, 
If you can talk your wife into it, write us and tell us how you did it. I, I also feel like is 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 the idea of playing poker so incompatible with his day job that a sabbatical hmm. is necessary? Like, I don't think of poker as being something that starts at nine in the morning, although maybe, again, maybe I'm way off and there's a ton of 9 a.m. poker games out there. Could you not have a full-time job and also play some poker on the weekends? You know, that's another thing that's kind of suspicious. It's another reason why I go to the Barack Obama theory. He said, like, he's doing quite well. He's in Silicon Valley, and he works from 9 to 5. Yeah, that's... Okay, let's think about that's that. That's hard to imagine. Plus, I have a child. Uh, children. <laughs> yeah, no, I, the, your theory is... is, is it's fa- This thing's falling apart. I don't this know. This thing is falling to pieces as we look at it more carefully. Yeah, man, I, I like, play poker on your lunch break, play poker on the weekends, uh, and what's what's with the three months? Like, what what is it about three months that either he's like, in three months I will have scratched this itch, I will no longer desire to play poker professionally full time, or I have a specific amount of money I'm looking to win, and I think I can win it in three months. Casey, what's do we have a follow up? What's that face? Oh my gosh! So Casey has just informed us that she thinks the reason he went with the name Rocky is because he's maybe uh, trying to train up for a tournament in three months, which apparently Rocky did. I don't know. I've never seen Rocky. Um, You've never seen Rocky? Never seen Rocky. You know what? Before you come on the air again, you're going to have to see all of the Rocky movies. All of them? Yo, Adrian. All right. All right. I I can make it happen. I remember seeing the scene where he drank a bunch of eggs. Bronx. Yeah. I thought it was in Philadelphia. Do you remember the name of his um, two goldfish? He had goldfish? I thought cuff, it was about boxing. Cuff and Link. You don't well, work cuff in your boxing? Just because it's about boxing doesn't mean that he can't have goldfish. Can I, I, a boxer not have goldfish? But why cufflinks? I don't understand the connection. What do cufflinks have to do with boxing? The names of the goldfish were uh-huh. cuff and link. Okay. Yes. What is, why no, I was just asking that? you a question about Rocky. I was right. trying to find out, do you know the Rocky story? No. That's appalling to was me. Was there a real Rocky? Is it like a, based on a real no, story? No, there wasn't a real Rocky. <laughs> Sylvester Stallone wrote the screenplay to Rocky I in three know. days. He could have written it about Post-art a person. Burgess Meredith, who wanted that role desperately, became a starring vehicle for Talia Shire, Burt Young. Won the Oscar in 1976. Well, I thought maybe it could it could Carl still Lewis. have been about a real I person. I took your mother for one of our first dates. Uh-huh. This is a true story. Uh-huh. I'm giving this to all of you people for free. Oh. People would pay money for this. One of our first dates, we went to see the, uh, what do they call it? The premiere of Rocky Three. Wow. Because a friend of mine that I used to go to Hollywood events with when uh-huh. I did that. Uh, yeah, when you would crash like yeah, Oscar after parties crash, crash, in uh, seminary. Events. Uh, provided a whole ton of extras for Rocky Three, And so we got to go to the premiere. Oh and gosh. your mom was real excited because she thought I was going to engage, get, get, get engaged to her on that night, which I did not. That's you waited until Christmas story. Eve, right? I did. I did. But uh, yeah, Rocky Three. I was there at the premiere. Wow. Yeah, uh-huh. seen, seen Sylvester Stallone many times. Short little guy. He probably should have gone and played poker. Well, uh, yeah. Oh, wow. I forgot we were actually talking about a real question. Uh, that's why you always want to bring it back. There's kind of an artistry to you. You go on an arc. It's well a done. journey. And then, boom, there you are. Poker. So uh, uh, here's my suspicion. Yes. My suspicion is that this guy has no intention of stopping at three months. Uh, maybe he does or maybe he thinks he is. But I've seen enough movies where someone says, this is my last score. I'm getting in. I'm getting out. And then I'm quitting the game forever. And I just feel like once you have quit your job to play poker professionally, and especially if you start making money, three months from now, it's going to be a lot harder for your wife to say, okay, three months are up. Can you get a job again? And for you to say, but I'm doing so well at this. Why don't I just do it full time? If there is a way for you to play poker in a tournament without taking, without quitting your job, right? Like if you work in Silicon Valley, presumably uh, you sometimes 
take vacation or you can go on leave. Like if you need like a couple days off a week for a few months or you want to work from home, I don't know, find a compromise that doesn't involve quitting your job to play poker. At any rate, uh, talk it over with your wife. And if your wife's really opposed to it, I don't think that the right approach mm-hmm. is to say it's not gambling because it's definitely gambling. It's like 100% gambling and you should not try to win this argument by being dishonest about your motives because that will never work. Um, or it'll work, but then you guys will have a huge fight six months from now. Um, yeah, you have other options. Dad, we did it. We fixed everyone's problems. It's a good feeling, and I will sleep well tonight. <laughs> Dad, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, explaining a lot about Rocky to me. It's, um, it's like auditory volume for people. Rocky is? No, this podcast. Oh, this podcast. Yeah. Oh, sure. I was like, do people relax to no, Rocky Free? No. That seems strange. Rocky's not like Valium in any form. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence, even though you don't have to. Our producer is Casey Miner. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. If you like this show, please go to iTunes and write us a review. Reviews help new listeners find the podcast, and then they ask us questions, and the podcast continues forever. Plus, my producer loves reading them. If you're going to leave a review, please stop telling us how great Carvel Wallace was. We know how great he was. Frankly, he's getting awfully smug about it, and I'm sick of hearing from him about what a great guest he was. So if you don't knock it off, I guess I'll just have to have him back on the show, and that'll teach you all. If you want me to answer your question, call and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR-3327. That's... That is to say, the deer is 3327. Don't write deer and then 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location as evidenced by Rocky. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it to 30 seconds or a minute tops. I'm begging you. And send it to me at prudencepodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>